So HubSpot, yeah, the very same people who make this show also make some other cool stuff, like software that helps you run your marketing, sales, and customer service. Later in the episode, we'll hear from one of HubSpot's customers that's on its way to being the king of kettlebells. Learn more about how HubSpot can help you grow your business at HubSpot.com slash customer love. <laughs> okay. These days, everyone wants to be a platform. And it makes sense. Customers want to connect with other people and the products they love. Businesses are using more kinds of software, not less. And all these things need to work together. The best platforms become a true center of gravity in an application ecosystem. Is that too much jargon? How's this? A platform helps companies grow better by putting their customers, their experience, their passion, first. Jeffrey Parker is a professor of engineering at Dartmouth College and the author of Platform Revolution, How Network Markets Are Transforming the Economy and How to Make Them Work for You. We talk about why the platform market is wide open for B2B companies and what companies should keep a keen eye on as they make that transition. I'm Megan Keeney-Anderson, and this is The Growth Show. Jeff, thank you so much for coming. I would love it if you would just start us out easy. At its most basic form, what is a platform? If you think about the common examples in the consumer space, something like an Uber or an Airbnb, in that case, the platform is designed to match the providers of a service with the consumers of a service and then allows them to transact with one another to exchange some element of value. And Got so it. that value element in could be a ride, could be an evening um, stay. Uh, in the case of something like a tweet, it could literally be the tweet itself. Um, yeah. Or in YouTube, it might be a video. And so these are, systems are all allowing uh, one type of a user to produce this element of value and another type of user to consume it and then to exchange some form of payment, whether that be your attention or some monetary compensation or just fame if it's some sort of a leaderboard system um, where you might rise to prominence. Now, I think everywhere you turn today, you sort of stumble across a platform, but I would imagine that most people listening, kind of their first exposure to platform concepts might have even been like Apple's App Store. Does that fit your mold? Yeah, so the App Store does indeed fit our mold. Um, what's interesting, of course, is that if you look at, at Apple, um, they're far more than just the App Store um, because they're also making the majority of their revenues and profits from selling hardware. But if you just mm -hmm. sort of drill down on the App Store itself, they're facilitating an exchange between the consumers of these apps and then the providers. And then they're providing essentially the hardware and the software and the contracting environment yeah. to allow for the exchange. Now, I've heard you may have a few gripes around Apple as a platform. Well, it's so I think that they've been very narrow hmm. in their pursuit of platform and cloud services and have been overly reliant on their hardware sales and as a result have been relatively slower in kind of broadening their revenue base and services offered 
yeah. um, relative to the bigger cloud players. I don't know if that's a gripe so much as an observation. I mean, it, it's yeah. it's a marvelous business model when it works, yeah. Um, but it leaves you on a relatively narrow footing, and so you keep having to execute again and again and again. And when you don't, you could kind of fall off that tight wire. Yeah, we see that, you know, every time they have an earnings call or it seems like everybody's waiting for that next piece of hardware or their ne- that next thing when they potentially could have leaned into this idea of platform a little bit more uh, and not necessarily had to come up with the next gadget every single year. Yeah, that's just a really difficult um, act to pull off. Yeah. And especially in a mature product space, which, to be honest, the smartphone has become. Talk to me about when this shift started to happen from sort of a closed mindset, a closed sort of approach to building a business to more and more open platforms? Well, I would argue that the shift really began to happen um, in the 80s mm. with kind of the rise of the Microsoft system and the, the kind of Windows and Wintel environment. Yeah. Because they were pursuing sort of a more modular and compatible set of technology layers. And then that allowed for a lot of innovation at the hardware level and a lot of innovation at the software level and a lot of innovation at the service provision level. Yeah. What about on the consumer side? Companies don't change just for the sake of changing. What changes have you seen out of consumer behavior or expectations that customers have that have paved the way for more platforms? Yeah. So I think you've seen a lot of behavioral changes. And again, this tends to be generational where people are just used to A, exposing their information, Mm -hmm. um, or B, paying for things with credit. You might remember that that was controversial uh, to give a website your credit card 20 years ago. And today, nobody thinks that that's remarkable at all. So that's a change in consumer behavior. And I think this idea that you can kind of reach out using technology to get physical goods delivered to you, whereas a generation ago, you might have insisted upon kind of testing the look and feel um, in person. And now I think people are more comfortable um, with being able to do things online uh, that they weren't in the past. So I think those are a couple of really important behavioral changes that have paved the way for these bigger consumer platforms to emerge. Now, can any business just start out today and say, I think I'm going to start out as a platform. So great question and one that we, of course, spend quite a bit of time with companies talking over. And it really depends upon who's already there. And so, for example, if you woke up tomorrow and said, hey, I want to get into the video distribution platform business, Mm -hmm. you would have to confront the existence of YouTube. And then you might say, well, I'm going to get into the high-end video system and uh, I'll provide lots of tools to sort of pro videographers. Well, then you would have to confront the existence of Vimeo. Ah. And and so the issue is if you're going to go into a space where there is an existing platform, that's a much tougher proposition than if you could start small in a relatively uh, untouched space and then work out the economics and the strategy and build a customer base, you know, in an area that's not going to attract much attention that's a much better bet than just trying to go head-to-head with an existing now giant. Yeah. How saturated are we? I would say that in things like the kind of business-to-consumer space, we're pretty saturated, especially in the retail environment. Hmm. Um, If you think about streaming media, that's starting to be a really tough environment to imagine coming in as an entrant. 
Uh, but on the other hand, I would argue that in some of the business-to-business platform space, we're, it's wide open. You know, we yeah. have yet to really work out because you've got a lot of a lot of firms that are used to this kind of enterprise per seat revenue model, where those are likely to open up and create whole new businesses that we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah. All right. Well, let's hit network effects because that is a pretty uh, key piece of all of this. Can you give us your 101 primer into understanding the concept of network effects first and then perhaps a company that you see do this really well? Okay. So network effects is the idea that users create value for other users. So it has these spillover benefits and they can be felt in a number of ways. So if we stick with YouTube, Mm -hmm. it's just a thicker market. So I can go to YouTube confident that I'll be able to find a video of interest to me. Whereas if I go to some small startup that has a relatively thin library, then it's hit or miss. Right. And so the, the platforms that have stronger network effects are actually going to create more value per transaction. And part of that is felt on the matching side where because they have more information, they can create better matches. Mm-hmm. And then the other part is felt on the content side where they just have a wider variety of content or items of value, sort of the value units, um, so that each time you consume, it's going to create more value for you on the consumer side. And then the way to get those producers to show up is to have a bigger, thicker market of consumers. And so you get this cross-sided network effect where the more type of one user attracts the more type of another user, and then you get into a virtuous circle. And that's the sort of indirect network effects, okay. um, which are the types of things that markets operate on, where you have producers and consumers. Right. But you can also get same-side network effects. So, for example, early on in the email standards or, or simple messaging services or even just the telephone, you know, the first telephone was a tough sell. You didn't have anyone to talk to. Yeah, right. You know, the first decade of telephones was a pretty tough sell. Or same thing with fax machines, you know, because sure. you did not have that many people to, to communicate with. But as you had a larger number of users, then the value of the system became higher per user. And so that has, even on the same side, this positive network effect. Um, and those, those can be really tough to compete against because you've got this installed base of users mm-hmm. that you need to somehow mobilize – to move from their platform to yours. And that has proven in some environments to be incredibly difficult. You know, witness Craigslist, which has been chugging along for a couple yeah. of decades with Good virtually no innovation, and yet it's still an active and vibrant marketplace. Yeah. So how, you know, where does monetization come in in all of this? How do you, where do, how do you make money on a platform? So it comes in a few ways, and this is an area, just as a sidebar, where I think traditional what we call pipeline or supply chain firms can get into trouble because they tend to think of monetizing in a, the traditional way where they might say, well, the end user is consuming a service or a product, and so that's where you charge. Yeah. And often in platforms, that's exactly wrong. And the reason is because of network effects. Um, you might not want to charge the end consumer, uh, and instead you might want to charge the producer 
upon completion of an exchange. And then that way you allow for the markets to develop and you don't drive people away by either charging membership fees or fixed costs, right. but only sort of taking a cut of the transaction once the value has been realized. So they can come in different ways. You could have, for example, we talked earlier about the Apple App Exchange where Apple yep. takes a fee. Um, where many developers, by the way, think the 30% is, is too a, high. A wee bit high, yeah. Just a wee bit high, and, yeah. <laughs> and you're starting to see that get negotiated. And you see it on the developer side. Or you have something like Open Table, mm-hmm. which matches you know restaurants with diners. And upon a completed transaction, the numbers you'll have to go and check on their website, they can change, but it's just a couple of percent. So it's a relatively small transaction cost uh, that the platform extracts high again from mm-hmm. the producer for a pretty high-value exchange. Um, and so the, the, the principle is you try to monetize where you don't destroy network effects. Right. And you don't create friction. Right, because if you're adding in a payment place, if, if the whole value is in making these connections and making these transactions, then anything you do to throw a wall up in there is going to slow down the entire platform. Exactly. And you know, one of our earliest examples of that came from Adobe Acrobat. Huh. Uh, when Adobe first established the portable document format, um, they kind of uh, cleaved their Acrobat product into a full-featured writer version and then a limited feature reader version. And then they charged $50 for the reader and something like $300 for the writer, reasoning that this was pretty neat technology and it was generating Mm -hmm. value. Unfortunately, the sales were virtually zero um, for both products because for somebody to invest in the writer, they had to have somebody who would actually have the product and be able to read it. Right, exactly. But for somebody to want to buy the reader, there'd have to be some content um, to consume. And so they ended up seeding uh, the market by getting a lot of IRS documents. So that was one way so that they actually had some content. Mm-hmm. But more importantly, they ended up just giving away the reader for free. Yeah. And then they extracted all of the, the kind of monetization of the platform on the writer side. And yeah. it worked brilliantly. Then as soon as the reader was free, there was significant demand for the writer. And yeah. so what they did was stumbled around a bit um, had the luxury of some time to work out which side of the market made the most sense to charge. More coming up after this quick break. Jay Perkins knows the secret to good heavy metal. What makes a high-quality kettlebell can be the finish, so it needs to be cast, and then when it comes out, it's going to be rough naturally. Uh, we make sure that all of ours are smoothed down so that it doesn't tear at people's hands while working out. That's going to create a better workout. You can go longer. Along with two of his friends, Jay founded Kettlebell Kings, selling the dumbbell-like exercise equipment made famous by Russian special forces. Jay saw the early surge in kettlebell training here in the U.S. and was itching to jump into the fray. All three of us tend to be pretty innovative and creative, and when you start a business, you have to be those things to succeed. Uh, We also were dumb enough to think that we could do it better than everyone else that we worked for. So Jay got to work. We had to do everything. So we were packing boxes out of the storage unit. You know, we were replying to customer inquiries. We had to take stuff to be dropped off, unload shipping containers. Uh, But that's not even the stuff that was going to grow the business. Putting in the sweat necessary to keep the lights on was a must. But Jay knew growing the company really meant growing the community. And it all starts with creating great content for your customers. 
Why was that again, Jay? It's virtually infinite the amount of people that it can reach through the web. Ah, that's right. So we knew we needed to create content, we knew we needed to build a community, but we had no infrastructure to do so. Community is what sets Kettlebell Kings apart. And if Jay wanted to turn his customers into promoters, he needed a software that could scale along with the company's ambitions. I want to build a company that is going to grow stronger from new challenges that arise. We're excited about Service Hub because it's going to allow what's helped us grow as a brand be consistent as we grow exponentially. So we've always thought, well, what if we couldn't sell kettlebells? How would we continue to exist or even grow stronger? And that's through the community that we've fostered. Service Hub allows Jay to connect with his customers on their terms. We would attribute all of our success to being a customer-focused business. You know, if we didn't have the community that we've built and utilizing the tool at HubSpot, it's helped us create this momentum now where we can start finally feeling like that we are having time to focus on other things as opposed to all of us running around doing a little bit of everything. If you're looking to goblet squat your way to fitness, I'll leave you with this bit of advice from Richard Simmons. Like yourself, eat healthy, and always remember, always squeeze your buns. Check out more stories from HubSpot customers at HubSpot.com slash customer love. HubSpot, grow better. So let's talk about the customers, the people who are actually consuming uh, what's delivered on the platform. How do you convey to them the value of a platform? I imagine you're not going to a customer and saying, hey, here's a platform to try. What's the actual uh, appeal for consumers? I'm going to channel Ming Zheng, who wrote a nice piece on some of the paradoxes of building platforms. He was the chief strategy officer for Alibaba. Mm. Um, and the quote is that people don't buy platforms. And furthermore, they don't yeah. necessarily know or care. Uh, they buy products and services. And so the value proposition is that when you affiliate with a platform, you get an excellent product or service. Yeah. Uh, you know, sort of full stop. It's it, that you get a better experience, a better product, um, a better service, or a better price, or all of the above mm -hmm. than you do from the previous supplier of those products and services, which is what allows for platforms to enter new markets so successfully. And I imagine from my own experience, you sort of get known for being that convenient, kind of least friction-filled way to find that thing. So, for example, um, a colleague of mine, uh, Karen Flanagan, mentioned the other day that he noticed that searches for New York hotels were on the decline in Google. And his theory was that you don't go to Google to search for hotels in New York anymore. You go to Airbnb or you go to TripAdvisor. You go to one of these platforms that's known for hotels rather than a blanket search. Do you place any weight in that? Yeah, I do. And, and it's beyond just hotels. It's starting to happen in retail mm. where a significant amount of retail search is starting to originate in Amazon relative to Google. And that's a, that's a big threat because uh, about 50% of search had commercial intent. And that's at oh, the wow. heart of yeah. you know, your ability to do effective ad placement in a search mm -hmm. environment. And if that commercial intent search starts to divert away for, as you uh, suggest, in hotels to potentially TripAdvisor, Expedia, Orbitz, things like that, then that'll change that fraction of search. 
And that's the revenue model for a company like Google is that they can sponsor and subsidize the part of search that has no sort of commercial intent um, by placing ads for the parts of search that do have commercial intent because you don't mind the ads if it helps create a better match. You know, you do mind them if they're sort of in your face and not relevant um, to what you're doing, which is why advertising in social media environments is a lower kind of revenue per user proposition than it is in search environments. That's fascinating to me because that feels like a pretty major shift in the way that we shop and buy and the really the, the structure of the internet even. How do you, you know, looking ahead to the future, how do you think that the prominence or the growth of platforms over the last few years will impact the internet and reshape our experience online? <laughs> There's always a danger in making predictions. Uh, you know, one of my <laughs> earliest. Uh, it's also a very grandiose question. Earliest mantras is the forecast is always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. So, you know, we should we should have a little bit of um, humility in in what we propose. So, uh, the fact that these internet giants have enormous user bases allows them a lot of flexibility in experimenting with other ways to generate revenue. So I wouldn't count them out um, and say, oh, because in this one specific sector, we're starting to see a bleed out of user activity mm-hmm. into something else. Well, you know, these games are, are kind of cat and mouse or, uh, or tit for tat. So mm-hmm. I would expect to see adaptation across the board as firms work to retain their user bases. And, and those firms that can't do that adaptation they're going to be the ones that that end up losing their user bases and sort of leaking customers away. And those that that do have that adaptability are, are going to thrive. And just as a pivot to why an open ecosystem or platform can be beneficial is that allows for your ecosystem to do the experimentation and to do the innovation of things that you didn't even know your users wanted. Um, but as long as they're transacting across your system, then you can be pretty much agnostic as to what it is you know, within the realm of reasonable um, that goes across the network. Yeah. So that's, I think, one of the reasons why a closed system runs a bigger risk than one that can decentralize and open up its innovation. So it's really about your adaptability that determines your success in this market. I think so, uh, because you know, change is going to be a constant. Yeah. Um, you know, in... in I was asked to make a forecast for what's going to happen in 20 years, and I laughed. <laughs> and I said, well, maybe quantum computing will become feasible. Yeah. Um, maybe organic computing will become feasible. Mm-hmm. And you know, we'll have sort of organic computers that operate at you know, several orders of magnitude, higher speed or lower cost than what we see today. Who yeah. knows? Um, or maybe you know, the things that we're doing with respect to climate change will prove to be absolutely the central um, sort of focus of everyone's um, effort uh, mm-hmm. because it's existential. So right. it's, it's really tough to say um, that far out. Um, but I think the adaptability is, is critical. Yeah. So what are some mistakes that you do see companies making when they are trying to evolve into a platform? Maybe they found that, that space and they think they can occupy it, uh, but then they stumble along the way. So I, I think firms underestimate the internal kind of channel conflict that they're going to encounter. 
Oh, yes. And that's happened in most firms that I've interacted with in this space. Uh, because if you go to the traditional way a firm runs, it tends to address vertical markets. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if you're a services firm like a Cisco or an SAP, you'll have an automotive unit, you'll have an oil and gas unit, you'll have a medical unit um, or division, and you'll have organized your business to serve those markets. Right. And that will have led to growth and success. And so then all of a sudden, uh, these more open Platforms are coming along and they've got unified data models that allow them to learn across the different verticals. Yeah. And then that increases the network effects that they'll experience because they're able to leverage user bases Mm -hmm. from different industries. Whereas the incumbent firms are often um, either growing up with unique technology and business models to address a market or they'll have grown up by acquisition where they'll just buy a business that addresses a market. And that yeah. pretty much guarantees incompatibility across their system. And so they're competing, in effect, with one hand tied behind their back. And so the challenge is uh, uh, twofold. You know, One, it's just sort of base infrastructure. Mm-hmm. What kinds of IT investments are they going to be able to make that helps to unify a data layer across the organization? And then the other is org structure. You know, where, how are they going to fill in the gaps Um, to interacting with these external ecosystem partners. And then a third and really major challenge is how are they going to deal with the revenue implications? Because if you're going to start to serve your existing user base with a cheaper cloud offering, that automatically means a bleed out of revenue and business from the incumbent channel. And that's automatic conflict. And, you know, sort of as a leader of an organization, it's really important to reason ahead and say, I know these are going to come. And so I've got to make it in everyone's interest to play ball, even if you're managing the division that you know is going to be reducing revenue over to the new sort of uh, cheaper cloud offering. And yet the future of the business depends upon that cannibalization. That's not a trick I've seen that many firms pull off successfully, truth be told. Yeah. That's really interesting. What I won't ask you the 10-year, the 20-year question. What are the indicators that you look to to get a sense of where this thing is, is headed and also you know, where cracks may start to form? Uh, what do you think are key indicators of the health of platform strategy? I think you would go back to some of the metrics that we use to measure platforms. Um, so one of them is the growth of the user base, but it's not just any user. It's actively engaged users, mm-hmm. sort of people who are either daily active, weekly active, monthly active, um, is a really critical metric. Uh, another one is the degree to which when people come and use a system, they get something of value. Right. Uh, and that's really uh, the failed match fraction yeah. relative to the complete match fraction because if people fail to match frequently enough, then they'll go away. And then the other part is it's not just the growth of the user base, but it's really the churn rate. Yeah. So to what degree uh, do people stay with you uh, once they come to your system? And so that I think with those metrics, you can really start to see where cracks are forming. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you take the, the examples that you gave earlier of New York hotel searches, well, so that's an area of activity that you would start to see fade away 
and in effect the 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 user base is um, bleeding out at least right. with respect to that type of activity. And mm-hmm. so I guess we should add a um, an activity specific metric. Um, but I think those are the types of things that as a, as the manager of one of these network platforms, you've really got to be keeping a pretty close eye on. Um, and then figuring out your replacement strategy. I mean, if you have some churn, you know, that's not great, but it's pretty much inevitable. Right. The question is sort of, are you able to either A, replace the user base, or B, provide such um, an increase in value to the, ex- the users that remain with you that you more than replace the revenue base? Yeah. And you know those sorts of metrics, I think, are are really important for senior managers to keep an eye on. Wow. Well, Jeff Parker, author, teacher, business strategist, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much. It's been a great pleasure. Today's episode was written and produced by Matthew Brown, with additional help from Isis Madrid. You can grab a copy of Jeffrey's book, Platform Revolution, wherever books are sold. It's the best look into ecosystem marketing, and I have to say, it's fascinating. If you like the show, and hey, even if you don't like the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Meg H. Keeney, or send us an email to hello at thegrowthshow.com. As always, I'm Megan Keeney Anderson, and thanks for listening.